0: There's so much health advice out there, lots of different voices and opinions, but who can you trust? Trust the experts, the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them tough, intimate health questions so you get the answers you need. This is the Health Essentials Podcast, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and Cleveland Clinic Children's. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician.
1: Hi, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Health Essentials Podcast. My name is Cassandra Holloway and I'll be your host. Today we're talking about living with lupus. We're here with rheumatologist Dr. Emily Littlejohn. Thanks for being here today, Dr. Littlejohn, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Cassandra. So today in this episode, we'll be talking about what it's like to live with lupus. We'll do a deep dive into everything from how it's typically diagnosed all the way to how it can affect your body and life as you know it. So lupus tends to be kind of one of those diseases that many people have heard of, but if you're like most people, you probably don't know anything too specifically about it. So we will be talking to Dr. Littlejohn today about living with lupus and everything that entails. So, with that being said, to start off our discussion, Dr. Littlejohn, I want to first ask you if you'll tell us a little bit about your practice at Cleveland Clinic and the types of patients you typically see.
2: Sure. Uh, well, I see all types of patients with rheumatologic disorders at the Cleveland Clinic main campus. Uh, and in particular, I see a lot of lupus patients. We have one day that's devoted just to lupus, and we call it the lupus clinic. And typically, I see patients alongside other specialists on that day, so nephrologists or dermatologists. Um, I also run the Lupus Biobank, which is a biorepository of lupus patients' blood and urine, and the idea is we see patients, we get a lot of input about their history and their medications and their family, and then we're able to kind of biobank or freeze uh, their blood and urine to then do further testing on in the future.
1: So I wanna start off by asking, you know, in its simplest terms, what is lupus, kind of how do you define this disease?
2: Yeah, I get this question a lot. So in its simplest term, uh, lupus is um, the body attacking itself. So the body stops recognizing itself uh, as self. Uh, it stop, starts attacking itself in different organs in different areas, which then causes inflammation at those sites. And the inflammation causes the pain or the, the lupus manifestations in the body. And what are some of those manifestations kind of what
1: are some of the, the top symptoms that you often see with lupus i'm sure they kind of range
2: on a big spectrum but like what do you typically see yeah so everyone's lupus is different you know we have this idea of the lupus fingerprint so everyone has their own lupus fingerprint uh, but lupus can really span any any involvement of the body so from head to toe you know it can cause hair loss patchy hair loss what we call alopecia it can cause lupus on the face in terms of rashes or sudden sensitivity it can cause ulcers in the nose or in the mouth. Um, certainly joint pain. Patients come in and they have pain in the hands or the feet, the wrists, usually along with swelling and some redness. And then, of course, internal organ involvement. So patients can have lupus that affects the heart or the lungs. Uh, and one of the most devastating manifestations is called lupus nephritis, when lupus affects the kidneys. So really, any organ can be involved. I would say the most common, um, I see a lot of joint pain. I see a lot of pain. Um, hair loss, uh, weight loss. Uh, fatigue certainly can go along with lupus, although it's very uncommon for people to have lupus with just fatigue as their main manifestation.
1: I feel like you often hear people talking about like these lupus flare ups and you mentioned like inflammation. Like, can you talk a little bit about what it means when people are, people are saying they have like a flare up
2: right now because of this disease? Sure. So um, just like I mentioned about the lupus fingerprint. So if a patient has lupus in the joints and they're very sun sensitive. Uh, they might go out into the sun, or they might get sick with a virus or some other illness, and they have a flare. Uh, flares can be caused by many things, you know, missing medications, like I said, the sun, uh, or or just being sick in general from a, a virus or another, you know, um, infection. But the, their typical manifestations will then come out. So they'll have joint pain. They'll have rashes on their face. They'll often be very fatigued. Uh, they can have changes in their urine. Um, Usually patients with lupus will know when they're flaring. Uh, every patient kind of is a, um, you know, has an idea of, of what their lupus is like and they can tell when it's active. So
1: are there certain like triggers? Obviously you said like going out in the sun, um, if you have lupus, should you be aware of like what triggers your flare ups to, to typically happen?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So usually when patients are diagnosed, that's one of the first things we ask them, you know, what are the main symptoms that you've had in the past that keep recurring or are worsening? Uh, And those typically are what are triggered when patients have a flare. We also can see in the blood and sometimes in the urine markers for inflammation or lupus activity. So it kind of confirms to us that, yep, this is definitely a lupus, a lupus flare. And these are symptoms from active lupus. And you mentioned the
1: rash that typically flares up. How common is that? Or again, does it kind of depend on the the lupus fingerprint? You often hear about that butterfly-shaped rash on the nose
2: or cheeks. Like, Talk to me a little bit about kind of the the skin aspect of lupus. Yeah, this is a great question. It's very important because uh, some people can have just sun sensitivity. You know, we go out in the sun and we get a sunburn. We get a little bit of redness on our face or on our chest, wherever the sun was exposed. Um, sometimes it leaves a, a red mark and then it can go away within an hour or, or a few hours. Typically patients with a true malar rash, which is the rash that, that we call um, a lupus rash, usually it takes you know hours to days to really come on. So patients will go away on vacation for the weekend and on Monday they come back and they've noticed they have some new lesions on their face or their chest and they kind of get worse before they get better. So they're palpable typically, they're very dark. Um, they don't really, they're not transient. They don't come and go quickly. Uh, they stay for a while. Are
1: there different types of lupus?
2: Yeah, so there's about four different types. Uh, the first one is systemic lupus, which is lupus that's kind of all over the body. We see it in the blood. Um, and that can be, you know, like I mentioned, in the joints, on the skin, in the heart, in the lungs, in the hair, in the kidney. Uh, that generally is called systemic lupus. Some people have isolated lupus on the skin, and that's called cutaneous lupus. Um, Patients can have lupus from drug effects, so certain medications can cause lupus. It really just sort of drives lupus to to kind of come to fruition. And the last one is called neonatal lupus, and that's when lupus really passes from the mother through the placenta um, and affects the the fetus. Patients um, with lupus, when they have babies, you know, we're usually very careful about surveillance and monitoring them uh, while they're pregnant to sort of avoid this type of thing. But babies can be born with lupus.
1: And did you say systemic lupus is the most common form of lupus
2: just in general? Mm -hmm. Mostly because there's just so many things that fall under systemic lupus. So lupus nephritis, you know, um, patients can have lupus uh, pneumonitis or, or those types of things. So
1: I feel like you often hear about this notorious like
2: lupus brain fog. What is that and kind of what causes that? That's a great question. And that's a question that I cannot answer in its entirety. There's a lot to be to be understood about that process. We think that what really is going on is um, there is a lot of inflammation at the blood brain border. So the area, you know, that protects your brain, there can be some lupus activity there and some inflammation and that local inflammation can cause brain fog, sort of like how patients get migraines or they um, are forgetful. You know, we think there might be an inflammatory reason for patients um, who have the brain fog. Sometimes when we treat the lupus, it gets better. And sometimes it doesn't. Um, There's just a lot to really kind of figure out in terms of what's going on with that.
1: With all of these like big ranges of, you know, where your symptoms fall, you know, what about the mental health side of lupus? I imagine having all of these symptoms can be quite emotionally exhausting, especially if something triggers it or they, you know, you can't control the flare-ups. Kind of talk to me about
2: the mental health side of lupus. Yeah, absolutely. So lupus in general, I think is a multidisciplinary disease. So we have a lot of specialists who need to be involved Uh, here at the clinic. When we see patients, we oftentimes will refer them to a cardiologist, a physical therapist, a nephrologist. And and one of those specialists who's involved in the care is oftentimes a a psychiatrist or a psychologist, because as you mentioned, it does take a a huge mental toll. You know, it's a chronic disease. Typically it's a lifelong disease. Um, And there's a lot of anxiety and depression that can go along with it. So you mentioned it was a lifelong disease. So
1: can it be cured or does it, you know, treatment, they basically focus on quality of life,
2: like it won't ever go away. Mm -hmm. I would like to describe it in terms of remission. So patients can come in, they can have rip-roaring active lupus. You know, we can give them our strongest medications, which are often chemotherapies, and we can put it into remission. It can be very quiet for a very long time. Now, some patients need to be on lifelong therapy. In some patients, they're able to come off their medication, you know, very far down, down the line. But generally speaking, we don't like to use the word cure. I think because it's a genetic components to this disease, uh, along with some other things, um, it's usually lifelong.
1: I know you mentioned that systemic lupus is the most common form of lupus, mm-hmm. but generally speaking, how common is lupus?
2: Like who does it affect and how often? Sure. The, the most commonly affected people are women of childbearing age. So ages 15 to 44. Uh, like I said, women more than men in uh, about a nine to one fashion, women are more affected. And it typically affects um Women of uh, certain uh, ethnic groups, minority racial and ethnic groups, African-Americans, Hispanics, uh, Asian Pacific Islanders more than uh, other, other groups. Generally, there's, we think there's probably between 200,000 and 300,000 patients right now living in the United States with lupus. It's a tough number to get because a lot of times lupus is either not diagnosed um, or takes a while to be diagnosed. Um, but typically women, childbearing age, uh, usually um, African-American, Hispanic, Asian Pacific Islander. Men are also affected I would just say much less so.
1: That's really interesting. I didn't know it was primarily women, but like you
2: said, obviously men can be affected as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when men are affected, they can be much more severely affected. So for example, in patients with lupus nephritis, which is lupus in the kidney, when men have lupus nephritis, uh, very often they have a very severe presentation. It happens very quickly and they're very sick.
1: I'm curious, is there a genetic kind of factor in lupus? Is it ever hereditary?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. So when a patient's asking why, why they have lupus, um, I tell them what we, we know to date, which is that we think it's born of a two-hit theory. So there is probably some genetic underlying issue, whether it be in the complement pathway or these other, other pathways of inflammation markers, um, but there's really a second hit. So there's something that's really unmasking and letting this kind of fluoresce. And whether that's a, an exposure to an estrogen or a hormone, whether that's an exposure to a virus such as the monovirus, we have some evidence of that or whether that's exposure to the UVA or UVB light, we're not totally sure, but it's probably both of those things in conjunction together. Um, It's not typically seen in first-degree relatives. So typically a person with lupus doesn't have sisters and a mother also with lupus, it does happen, but it's more commonly sort of clustered in families. So I will have a patient who has lupus and maybe her distant cousin also has lupus or maybe her mother had rheumatoid arthritis Um, we have a lot of these diseases that are sort of cousins and they live on a spectrum of each other. So patients often will have family members with one of those other types of diseases.
1: That's really interesting that you can kind of often find kind of a similar kind of situation going on somewhere in the family line at that point.
2: Yep, there's a lot of clustering, I would say. That's kind of what we call that, yep.
1: Can you have lupus and have no idea, are there always symptoms or can it go kind of undiagnosed for your whole life or for several
2: years? Yeah, that's a great question. For, for the most part, I tell patients lupus doesn't hide. So, you know, if you truly have very severe active lupus, we're going to see it somewhere, whether that be on the physical exam, whether that be in the blood um, or other imaging. You know, we, we can see lupus internally on echocardiograms of the heart or different, different uh, images of the organs. There are some cases though where patients come in and they have this, you know, very abnormal blood work and they feel great. And those patients, I usually don't leave... Let leave my site for very long. I usually will see them back every six to nine months because my concern is that they're sort of accruing inflammation slowly over time and they're going to become a lupus patient or a patient with an autoimmune disease. So it can it, it can be silent for a while, but if you truly have strong evidence in the blood of a lupus or lupus-like syndrome, uh, I, I usually I usually like to check up on them at least once a year.
1: So I know you said you like to think about lupus and the cure for lupus kind of being in this remission kind of state. Mm -hmm. What is the prognosis for lupus, you know, in the long-term effect, kind of what are those most severe
2: kind of outcomes if you do have lupus? So what we worry the most about is end organ damage. So when patients are diagnosed with lupus, we want to figure out what their fingerprint is. And those who have severe uh, end organ damage are the ones that we worry about the most. So for example, if someone comes in and they come in with issues in their kidneys or their urine is very frothy and we do a kidney biopsy and they have very active lupus nephritis. Those patients we worry about the most because that means that their lupus kind of came on quickly, it's very active and who knows how long it's been active. So the prognosis for a patient who's very ill at the beginning and is perpetually ill or takes a long time to get into remission, the prognosis is, is likely worse. And that typically happens in young, young women who, like I said, kind of come in with very severe disease. We also see patients who are a little bit older Women maybe over over 50 who have uh, have lupus. Typically, they don't have severe organ involvement, but those patients tend to do a little bit better. So they they might have a little bit of arthritis or um, some skin manifestations of lupus, but they don't have end organ uh, disease, and, and they tend to to do, to do very well.
1: So with this lupus fingerprint, um, you know, that we keep mentioning, and you said kind of managing lupus is this multidisciplinary kind of team approach with your team of doctors Mm -hmm. and clinical professionals. How long does it take to diagnose lupus? You know, I imagine having all of these symptoms and in between different flare-ups and triggers, it might be a bit difficult, you know, to find a true source to why you are having these symptoms and why you're feeling this way um, and what's ultimately causing these issues. So talk to me a little bit about
2: um, diagnosing a lupus, you know, mm-hmm. disease. So the big, the big thing with lupus is there are a lot of mimickers, uh, and they, the mimickers can be other autoimmune diseases. The mimickers could be an infection. They could be a malignancy, um, a, a blood cancer or a, a blood disorder. So we have to be very careful when we diagnose lupus because we have to look at the blood. We have to look at what's going on with the bone marrow. Um, and oftentimes we have to go, you know, look at other organs. So the urine or, or advanced imaging to make sure we're not missing something else. So that's sort of the the first big issue in that sometimes patients have one or two symptoms that sound lupus-like, but we don't see it in the blood or the opposite happens. Like I mentioned before, we see something in the blood, but they don't have any symptoms. So sometimes we'll wait until we kind of have more symptoms or or more uh, evidence that there's true lupus activity. And the reason why we wait sometimes, even if we suspect there's lupus, is because our medications aren't without side effects. You know, our medications are typically very immunosuppressive. So I don't wanna start a patient on a chemotherapy or a drug that's gonna put them at risk for an infection unless I'm, I'm really sure that that's what's going on. Um, especially you know during COVID, we wanna be uh, very conservative with putting people at risk for, for an infection.
1: And you mentioned the blood test. That's a big one for obviously diagnosing lupus. What other tests or exams are typically performed when you're going through this kind of diagnosis? Sure. So,
2: Typically at a first visit, when I suspect lupus, we do get a panel of blood work. Uh, Patients will probably be familiar with the ANA test. And that's by no means a specific test for lupus, but um, it is very important that the patients have a a positive ANA. We also look at their urine because the urine can tell us what's happening in the kidney. And like I mentioned before, that's the one organ that we don't want to miss if there's involvement of the kidney. Oftentimes I'll also get uh, x-rays of the hands or the feet or any of the joints that we think could potentially be involved with the lupus. Um, And then if patients have issues with their heart or their lungs, we'll certainly get a CT scan of the lungs uh, and and an echocardiogram of the heart or at the very, uh, at the very least an, an EKG. So looking at the way that the heart is beating.
1: Is there like an average amount of time that it typically takes to find a lupus diagnosis in a patient?
2: I'm not sure I can say there's a typical amount of time. I do know that patients will come to me with lupus and they'll tell me that Back when they were in high school or back when they were a teenager, they had these these symptoms and it wasn't until you know 10 or 20 years later that they finally are are diagnosed and whether that be because they didn't know to go see a doctor about it. They didn't make their way to rheumatology um, or no one told them that that could potentially be a lupus diagnosis. I'm not sure, but there often is a very long lag time uh, to diagnosis.
1: Do you have any advice for listeners who um, might be feeling frustrated by a lack
2: of a diagnosis in general, whether it's it's lupus or not, ultimately? I think the first thing is there's no shame in getting a second opinion. You know, we see a lot of second and third opinions here at the clinic. Uh, Blood work typically is the same at different institutions, but in some cases, uh, blood work will be run differently. Uh, The different assays can be either machine run or or human human run, Uh, so that can be important. And I think just getting a second set of eyes on on what's going on, because maybe there is something that's more serious going on. Like I said, like a malignancy, uh, they need to see the hematologist, maybe they need a bone marrow biopsy. So I think if there's ever an idea of we're missing something or there's some frustration to always get a second opinion Um, and also be your own advocate, you know, be strong about getting a second opinion, ask questions, go back to your primary care doctor, Um, seek out, you know, other specialists because um, it is a very frustrating disease and it's very elusive. So we have to have a, a keen eye for it. So if you have been diagnosed with lupus, what sort of treatment is
1: available? You know, walk me through kind of what you first start thinking of it in terms of a treatment
2: plan for someone with lupus. So when someone comes in with lupus, we, we kind of assess which organs are involved. So that's the first thing, uh, if it's joint pain versus if it's, you know, issues on the skin or issues with hair loss. And like I said, I'll usually engage other physicians. So if it's someone coming in with a very severe skin lupus, I'll certainly see them and treat them, but I'll send them to the dermatologist also to help, to help with treatment. The first line uh, for kind of temporizing measures for acute flares, we use, we use steroids and any, any lupus patient who has taken steroids before they they know it works very well, but there's a lot of side effects with steroids. Steroids are very dangerous long-term, you know, literally they can affect almost every part of the body, every organ of the body in, in a very negative way. That's usually the first line just to get things under control. The next step is something called Plaquenil, or hydroxychloroquine, which is a medication that I call lupus life insurance. So patients will take it and they'll be on it for life. They're really investing in their future self. It's really one of the only drugs that we have that prolongs survival on lupus and can prevent organ involvement. So every lupus patient, unless they can't tolerate the drug, is on Plaquenil. Uh, after that, we have our more immunosuppressive medications, and there's a whole slew of them. Uh, we have a few that are just for lupus, like Benlista, uh, which is a great medication. Uh, but there's a lot of other drugs that we've borrowed from the, the oncology world. So things like mycophenolate or methotrexate, and these are all just drugs that are, they modify the immune system and they can be taken orally. Sometimes they're given it as an injection. And then we have our, our biggest guns, which are usually infusions. So things like cyclophosphamide um, or cytoxin or rituximab, which are are kind of our big hitters. Uh, and that, that, that requires a patient to come into our infusion center and sit for four to six hours and they get an infusion. And those drugs require a lot of monitoring um, for blood work and for infections and those types of things. So there's different tiers of how we treat patients. And that's just a pharmacological aspect of it. You know, we always talk to patients about lifestyle and eating heart healthy diets and making sure they're exercising. And if they need to see physical therapy to make sure they're strengthening their their ligaments and their their muscles around their joints. So it's kind of a, you know, multi-pronged attack um, here. And also some patients find that if they eat a certain diet, they feel great. So patients who avoid heavy sugar diets or um, gluten or other inflammatory foods, they tend to feel better. Uh, We really just recommend a heart healthy diet because patients with lupus are known to have advanced coronary artery disease or atherosclerosis. So we ask them to be very conscious of that. But um, like I mentioned, a lot of times the cardiologists will help us talk to them about that, or we can refer them to dieticians.
1: How important is that kind of doctor patient relationship? You know, it sounds a lot like you're counseling these patients and kind of working through a treatment plan and they obviously have to be having an open conversation with you about, you know, what they're experiencing in terms of symptoms. It just sounds like there's, you know, a very kind of special bond between
2: a doctor and a patient to try to solve this problem together. Yeah, I feel a I feel a strong connection to my lupus patients and a lot of that is because I feel sort of like their primary care doctor even though I'm I'm really not, but because we're taking care of so many different parts of their of their disease. So, you know, from really every organ to even just their health maintenance. So we talk about vaccinations, we talk about their pap smears, we talk about things that they just need to have every single year. Um, but when they come in and we examine them, we do a full body exam. So you're very familiar with your patients. It's a very intimate relationship. And I think that's important because you don't want to miss anything just because, you know, lupus can pop up in different things over time and different organs and, and kind of morph. And you want to make sure that you have an idea of what's really happening with each patient.
1: Are there any other alternative treatments that you often will recommend to patients? I know you said physical therapy. I'm curious is like acupuncture or massage ever something that you recommend?
2: So if they feel better with acupuncture or massage, I say that's great. You know, your mental health is important. If it makes you feel good, you're going to you're going to be well. Uh, in terms of kind of what the evidence has told us, we know that patients who keep moving do better. So as long as they're active, whether that means pool therapy or walking or, you know, any kind of other hobby that they have, even meditating, just staying active uh, mentally and physically. uh, We know patients do better over time. So my last question today for you is just about generally coping
1: with lupus. So if you have lupus or you were recently diagnosed, you know, you're likely experiencing a lot of emotions from, you know, fear to frustration. How important is coping and support when dealing with a lupus lupus diagnosis, you know, know, either right in the very beginning or as a lifelong kind of disease that they're going to have to live with,
2: what parting advice do you have for our listeners? Um, Yeah, this is important. Like I mentioned before, being your own advocate is everything. Bringing people to your appointments who can also kind of advocate for you. Um, There's a lot of really wonderful support groups out there. The Lupus Foundation of America is one, the LFA, uh, which has a lot of different chapters locally and on on the, the bigger levels. arthritis foundation is also very important Um, i think they offer a lot of very good steadfast information Um, the the biggest problem i have when patients come in is that they've googled things you know and, and google can be very scary and there's a lot of misinformation out there so looking for groups such as these foundations, the LFA, the arthritis foundation that have really strong factual information that can educate a patient because education and and knowledge is really power with this disease. So I think kind of taking things into your own hands but also knowing the the appropriate and the the best resources is what's really important.
1: That's wonderful advice to end on. Dr. Littlejohn, thank you so much for speaking with us today and sharing your insight. You're welcome, thank you for having me. To learn more about managing lupus, visit clevelandclinic.org
0: lupus. Thank you for listening to Health Essentials, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and Cleveland Clinic Children's. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit clevelandclinic.org slash HEPodcast. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest health tips, news, and information.